Hello and welcome to episode two of Lowered Standards, a podcast about the cheaper side of standard. In a world of, until recently, $100 staples in standard, we focus on inexpensive alternatives for your Friday night magic scene. My name is John, an on-again, off-again, star-crossed magic lover, who came back to magic scene around Alara Block. Joining me today is my co-host, Steve. Say hello there, Steve. Hello, Steve. Ah, ha, ha, you got me there, you devil. <laughs> yes, yes, I was uh, an unemployed alcoholic living in the fields of Scotland who decided to quit his bunny ranching and come over to the United States to become a semi-professional Friday Night Magic player. Yeah, and I needed someone to talk to. It's kind of depressing talking to yourself for 30 minutes, so. It is, it is. I know that because I've spent a lot of time talking to rabbits. Rabbits are okay company if you can get past their megalomania and reactionary politics. Mm-hmm. Anyway, our mission <laughs> is to bring you a condensed 30 to 40 minute podcast filled with the latest magic news, a featured lowered standards approved standard deck, and a commander card challenge of the week. Today we're going to be discussing some of the new M12 spoilers, including Jace 3.0. And our Lowered Standards deck of the week is the only deck in town where you can legally play Stoneforge Mystic in Standard after July 1st. It is the War of Attrition new Phyrexia event deck, MSRP $25. <laughs> we'll also be uh, uh, discussing some cl the classic and refined magic psychographs and where we fit in the spectrum. So the Spike, Timmy, Johnny, Borthos, Melvin... Chandra. I don't think she counts, but I imagine she's just mad all the time. <laughs> Got that one magic player in the back of the room that's just like fuming. That's that's the Chandra. Our news of this week includes the discussion of new Jace 3.0. The Jace that resulted after Morrow sent him to the Watsi vet to get neutered. What are your thoughts on this new uh, new version of Jace, Steve? Well, I don't really know. I mean, let's let's read the card for everybody so that they can they can know what we're talking about. Okay, his name is Jace, Memory Adept. His casting cost is 3 UU, so a total of 5 mana. He's a Planeswalker Jace, of course. He didn't, you know, lose his name. He starts off with about 4 loyalty. Um, his plus 1 is to draw a card, and then target player puts the top card of his or her library into his or her graveyard. His 0 ability, which is his second ability, um, uh, target player puts the top 10 cards of his or her library into his, his or her graveyard. And his minus seven ability, or his ultimate, is any number of target players each draw 20 cards. Well, my thoughts on him, first off, the art looks really anime. And I don't think that's bad. That kind of fits Jace. But, I mean, like, he has blue spiky hair. Yeah, he's hard to get less anime than that. He has lost his hood. That is one thing I think that's probably, you know, he's distracted by that. He's not able to sculpt as many minds. Without his hood maybe, up, so. maybe Jace has gone to a plane where anime exists, really <laughs> liked it, and now he's trying to blend back into Dominarian society. He's all like, oh, I need a brooding, oppressive look, but I love this hair. 
You know, he's got his idiom. Right. It's not like magic players and anime watchers don't overlap either. No, I, I don't think those two cross at all. <laughs> Going back to the part where we're talking about Jace, memory adept. So his number one ability is probably going to be to put the top ten cards of a target player's library into his or her graveyard. He's going to be a mill engine. It doesn't cost you anything to do that. He doesn't get more powerful. Um, the drawing a card thing is kind of a desperation thing. I guess if you're if you're ramping up towards drawing 20 cards to use them as a finisher, but it seems like you could just probably keep using him to to mill 10 more reliably than you would by by ramping up. I mean, you're the drawing 20 is kind of neat, but I don't know. I think he's going to be really good after Innistrad. Actually, I think once Emrakul rotates out of the format, he's going to be a powerhouse, and mill is going to probably be a viable strategy. With the Eldrazi in standard now, it's really hard, I think, to consider making a solid mill deck because you just have to sideboard in an Eldrazi. After, like, you know, Rise of the Eldrazi rotates out of standard, Jace, the memory adept, will still be in standard. If mill is at all supported in any of those next three expansions, I think he's totally going to be viable. I think he's kind of like Eye of Eugen right now. I just don't think he has a place, but soon I think he will. It's it's certainly possible. I mean, I think his first ability could, and his ultimate could combo well, like if you had some uh, enchantments like Jace's Erasure in play. So, like, every time you're drawing cards, they're milling anyway, so you can just kind of... I don't know. I, I've, I've found that, like, stuff like this that seems sort of innocuous at first ends up being amazing once it finds its its home. But, any uh, other new interesting uh, M12 spoilers that you've uh, have caught your eye there, Steve? Uh, yeah, actually. I really like Bloodlord of Bazagoth. I guess it's Vazgoth, but, you know, whatever. I like Vazgoth. It has nice alliteration. Yep. Uh, he's a vampire warrior for three and two black, and he's a mythic rare, and he has bloodthirst three flying, and whenever you cast a vampire creature spell, it gains bloodthirst three. He's a three three. So what does bloodthirst mean? Obviously, if, if an opponent was dealt damage this turn, this creature enters the battlefield with three plus one plus one counters on it. So, theoretically, you're getting a 6-6 flyer that gives everything else Bloodthirst 3 for 5 mana. As a person who didn't really play a lot during Ravenka, when Bloodthirst was a mechanic that was fairly commonly used, at least then I wasn't impressed with Bloodthirst as a mechanic. I think it's way too situational to be good, and if if you're casting the creatures when you haven't got their Bloodthirst, when you can't kick it, the creatures are pretty terrible. And waiting around to cast creatures until you've already dealt damage is kind of counterintuitive, I think. Um, Obviously, I'm not that great of a magic player. There's probably a way to do it more reliably, more consistently, and with some of the stuff that's been printed since Ravenka. uh, I'm sure that there's card interactions that I'm just not thinking of. But off the top of my head, it seems cooler than it is. (laughs) That would be my, my final verdict for it. Yep. Well, there is the new um, unblockable bl- one mana black creature. I think that's going to be coming out in this set. So, holy crap! I totally forgot about that dude. Well, Bloodthirst <laughs> awesome now. <laughs> well, and he could be good in like an aggressive vampire strategy, which already exists as maybe a top end. Although it should be interesting to see if vampires even need him. I mean, right now a lot of their um, no, 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 no. Are... Black has an unblockable common. It's, it's freaking amazing. <laughs> It's true. Holy crap. I don't believe... You just totally changed... Okay, invalidate everything I just said up until right now, because that is awesome. Mind blown. <laughs> totally blown. You see? Yeah. I'm, I, I am all about... So get four of them now. 
<laughs> before they're released. Yes. Uh, well, our other thing that I'm noticing lately is they've been printing a lot of old Mirrodin block type um, uh, reprints in this set, such as Pentavus and Solemn Simulacrum is also back as a confirmed thing in M12 right now. So I think they're kind of looking back at some of these more, uh, this more other older artifact era in magic history to kind of couple with the Scars of Mirrodin um, block. And I don't know, we'll see, maybe we'll see some more reprints from that era. I doubt they'd reprint something like Arcbound Ravager, but, you know, they might uh, throw some other interesting cards like uh, World Slayer. Yes, World Slayer. Whenever it, it's a five mana equipment, and whenever it equipped creature deals combat damage to a player, you destroy all permanents, all permanents, other than World Slayer, not just the enemy's permanents. Other what, John? All permanents, Steve. Other than what, John? World Slayer. Sounds like a Pantera song, doesn't it? It does. I'm guessing that's what's going on in the background here. They were listening to Pantera, came to Mirrodin, and blew it up. So yeah. Maybe that's Karn's like, secret weapon against Phyrexia. He's going to go find World Slayer and just destroy it. I would love it if World Slayer were Karn's guitar. <laughs> he's like some sort of legendary rock god. Well, I mean, he's a golem. He's already made out of, like... Solid metal. <laughs> you got it! You got it! <laughs> Karn is all a metal, baby. I mean, it seems to me. Wow, we are funny tonight. That is ridiculous. Standard approved. I just have to start off with a little disclaimer here. This is a pretty straightforward aggro deck. If you're into more of a slow controlling game, or you like to drop out nasty 7-7 fatties that will sit on your opponent until they cry uncle, this deck is not for you. That being said, if you'd love to finish out a round in 10 minutes, leaving your opponent tremoring from the intensity and swinginess of a fast aggro beatdown or defeat, then you've come to the right place. This deck mostly is just a new take on White Weenie, with the Weenie part mostly made up of cheap living weapons and white aggressive creatures. The deck pretty much relies on dumping most of its hand, be it equipment or dudes, onto the battlefield as soon as possible to put pressure on your opponent. It's also the only deck in Standard where Stoneforge Mystic is still legal, and this deck runs two of them. Unfortunately, in order to run your Mystics, you can't alter the deck list at all, unless the first thing you do is replace the Mystics with other cards. Now, Which having played against it, I'm actually pretty impressed with it. For a pre-constructed deck, it's got a nice bite. I mean, I played a, uh, uh, obviously Standard doesn't really have a champion right now. People are talking about Deceiver Exarch and Splinter Twin. Um, some of the pros are saying, or at least from what people who say they're pros on their forum post. It, it doesn't have a lot of staying power, and Go for the Throat really does kind of dismantle it. Um, well, all in all, um, other than the Mystics, 
Some other notable cards in this deck include a removal package of Journey to Nowhere and Leon and Relic Warder. Okay Singleton equipment for the Mystic um, to fetch up, such as Bone Horde, uh, the Sword of Vengeance. I think it uh, also has just some other random living weapons like Skin Wing and Sickle Slicer as one of. Um, also runs Singleton copies of Pure Steel Paladin, Kemba, Ka Regent, and Mirren Crusader. Most of the rest of the deck is just of the white weenie variety, um, with weenies such as Elite Vanguard, Leonin Skyhunter, Porcelain Legionnaire, and Core Duelist. I mean, it's it's decent uh, as in a as a, a solid core to play against. You know, Sword of Vengeance really kind of gets overlooked because it's in the same standard as Sword of War and Peace, Sword of um, Peace and Famine. Sort of body and mind, you know, but it's good. I mean, it is decent. It, it does a lot of stuff you really want it to do. What does what does the sword do, John? Maybe we should read it. Well, Steve, the sword is a three mana equipment um, that gives the equipped creature plus two plus zero, first strike, vigilance, trample, and haste, with an equipped cost of three. And let's not forget, its flavor text is when wielded by a true believer. It matters little whether the sword is a relic or a replica. But that that was the uh, sword that was printed in M11. That was before we had any of the uh, better swords, I guess you could say. Um, the ones from the Scars block, as you mentioned earlier. You know, it, it's it's okay. You wish that it was one of the swords from the Scars block, because those were all better than Sword of Vengeance. Um, the equip cost of three, I think, is the thing that really kind of throws you, because it's a lot to ask um, to add three onto a casting cost of a creature in order to give it that haste ability and have him swing. It also means that a Chroma herself is really only a 4-6 with pro-red and pro-black. And flying. She does have flying. That does not give it flying. So. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm still kind of disappointed. I disillusioned. know. Disillusioned is probably the better choice of words. Yeah. But getting back to the deck itself, Steve, the deck is pretty successful at its goals, provided there aren't any sweepers such as Day of Judgment or Pyroclasm or Slagstorm to hamper it. Uh, I mean, it does. that is its big weakness. It's got a lot of things of the toughness of two or less. Pyroclasm can just blow you out, and there are some decks that you know have easy access to it, like the Splinter Twin, like Balakit, um, that may start running that in their sideboard, especially if decks like Vampire start becoming more popular again with a lot of their you know, two and three toughness uh, range creatures, so. So here's the question I have. What is what is this War of Attrition deck run for removal? How does it deal with threats? Journey of Nowhere and Leon Relic Warrior, which are okay. Um, I, I would say uh, Journey to Nowhere is going to handle most of your big creatures, like the people might drop down that you need to get rid of. Leon Relic Warrior, yeah, it's, it's all right as well. Especially, I think it was better when there were swords in the... Stoneforge Mystic was fetching them up, uh, so he's probably not going to be as good. I suppose he'll still get rid of something like Spellskite, which is decent enough. I, I would say some of its pros of the deck, just as it is, um, would be that it has a fast start, access to a powerful tutor, which was required to be banned, and uh, a de- decent mid-game if it can get the right equipment into play. Uh, its cons are the aforementioned sweeper issue, like the pyroclasm, especially. No many people are playing uh, Day of Judgment right now, but pyroclasm certainly is something to worry about. It doesn't have much card draw other than the single pure steel paladin that it has, 
and the fact that most of the creatures um, are not able to handle an early Titan. If your opponent's able to get an early Titan down and you don't have the journey to nowhere, um, that's going to be a lot of headaches for you to try and deal with. All of its removal also can only be played at sorcery speed, which I said earlier, which also is a problem if someone's trying to combo off with Exarch or something else that you need to handle immediately. So I think it would do okay if it gets out of the gate real fast and they don't have the early combo pieces in their hand. But if there's nothing preventing them from just dropping the turn three Exarch, turn four twin, because there's no way that you can stop it as the with the deck that, as it's built right now. So along those lines, uh, some changes I would suggest after you have to remove the Mystics if you make any changes to the deck. Uh, I would say adding more Pure Steel Paladins to get up to four, definitely a great option. He's only three to five dollars right now, so. I'd say it's pretty cheap and effective uh, in that slot. It also gives you extra card draw, a little bit more synergy at the deck. I'd probably take out the Relic Warders and put in um, Dispatches. It's the, a card from New Phyrexia that uh, reads, it's one white mana, and it's an instant, and it just reads tap target creature. But if you have Metalcraft, it removes that creature, or exiles, as the new term is, uh, that creature. So um, it is a source of plowshares um, with no drawbacks most of the time in your deck. You're running a lot of artifacts, which leads me to my next point. I would probably replace some of the white weenies with other living weapons, such as mortar pod, to deal with things like the uh, lotus cobra, other one uh, toughness beasts that you might need to take down, and other artifact creatures such as uh, possibly ornithopter, is an option. Memnite's an option. I, I've also seen like some people like Vault Scourge. I think it's because of the flying and lifelink. It's from, an option. From uh, experience playing Vault Scourge in casual magic, I'm actually pretty impressed by that creature. It's better than it appears at first glance. Mm-hmm. The Metalcraft is important to hit early and often, especially if you need, I'd say you'd need to get that Metalcraft on board so that you can get that dispatch active to kill their Exarch combo. I'd also probably consider, if you're going to try to dodge the Pyroclasm bullet, um, something like Brave the Elements might be an okay card. Um, it would save your your Pierce of Paladins, your Mirren Crusader, and your Legionnaires, uh, the Porcelain Legionnaires, that is, uh, from the Pyroclastic blowout. You also, if you have Metalcraft with your Paladin, a Pierce of Paladin, you can, you know, if, if your living weapons die, you can at least move your equipment onto him for pretty cheap. So um, I would say the other obvious real fits, but doesn't quite fit with the lowered standards way of thinking, would be cards like Mox Opal or Batter Skull. But those are like 20 bucks a card. And, you know, if you just have to happen to have, you know, oh, I opened one in a pack, then I'd say, you know, that, that you're good to go. But... Um, it gives you a little bit more early game consistency and speed with the Mox, or a little bit more late game cleanup with the Batter Skull. So I also got to add in that uh, Sun Titan is pretty inexpensive right now. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about Sun Titan. He is someone that maybe could help recur some of your uh, Pure Steel Paladins or Legionnaires or uh, the Singleton Crusader if they go to the graveyard. Um, it's certainly something that uh, you could consider. I mean, uh, even Mirren Crusader might be a card you could consider, but um, I'm just going to double-check its price here. According to magiccards.info, he's going for about 5 to $6 right now, so um, I would say, yeah, you probably could find those for pretty reasonable um, and and put them in the deck. I mean, none of the cards in here are sp- uh, specifically expensive by any means. 
Um, the only trouble you might have finding a war attrition deck is um, people don't like selling them for MSRP at $25 because of the two Stoneforge Mystics. Although, since Stoneforge Mystic has kind of gone down in value with its banning, um, that may you might start seeing more people be willing to sell it at that um, probably 20 to $30 level. But I think if you follow those simple and mostly affordable suggestions, you'll find this deck will do just fine in an F&M environment. And it's kind of interesting, too. I believe a deck similar to this did well in the block format at the Pro Tour Nagoya, but happened just recently as well. So um, I think... If you're relatively new to Magic, one thing you want to keep in mind when you're perhaps getting this deck and learning to play it, um, this is a great, you know, starting spot if you want to play something that's got a little, you know, a bit of a bite to it. Um, it's also uh, something that you want to keep in mind if you're thinking of adding stuff like Batter Skull and Sun Titan. Uh, you do want to keep in mind the mana curve. The deck is built to run cheap creatures, not big ones. And, you know, if you're... Just again, if you're if you're a newer player, you want to keep in mind that you need to have enough lands to reliably get your stuff out. That's true. And the the, the land uh, base for this deck is pretty much I think 22 or 23 uh, lands right now. I would recommend probably sticking around that unless you're going to add some higher end um, object to it, like a Sun Titan. I think that's fair for this deck. Um, it also runs two like Dread Sanctuary, I think, which I would say it's very easy just to take those out and run Tectonic Edge. Um, it might help you a little, little bit more against a Valakut-type matchup where you need to answer their Valakuts or die. <laughs> well, that's my thoughts on it. So I, I would strongly recommend uh, looking into this deck if you uh, want a, a cheap, effective uh, deck that's uh, easy to run um, and interesting to play. I think we'll move along here. We'll come back in a second and talk about magic psychographs and where we fit into the spectrum. I woke up this morning with the sun down shining in I found my mind in a brown paper bag but then I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high I tore my mind on a jagged sky I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in. So, uh, what I want to talk about now is psychographic profiles. Uh, if you're new to magic, you've probably heard the terms Timmy, Johnny, and Spike, but you've maybe wondered what in the world people are actually talking about when they mention these things. Timmy, Johnny, and Spike are psychographic profiles that the designers of the game use to kind of cater their cards, the cards they're coming up with, to the tastes of the Magic-playing audience. Really quickly, Timmies are people who enjoy the visceral experience of playing. Um, Timmy is in it for the journey, more or less. Uh, Timmy also really likes big, stompy monsters. You know, a Timmy card is something like Blightsteel Colossus. It's a 12-12 trample infect indestructible creature. And, yeah, it's pretty sweet. I mean, it's a big, stumpy monster. How cool is that? Johnny, the next profile, according, again, to Mark Rosewater. Uh, if, you, if you can't tell, I'm referencing an article he's written. Johnny wants to express part of himself when he's playing Magic. He's uh, very focused on the customizability of the game, and uh, <laughs> deck building is a big aspect to Johnny. The spikes are the players who 
really want to win. For them, the game is just a, a vessel to get you to that final moment of crushing victory. Uh, a spike can play ten games of Magic and win nine of them and be upset that he lost that last one because he didn't play something right or he could have thought through this better or he made a mistake. Uh, and spikes love cards like Mental Mista. Uh, you know, you, you typically think of a, a person playing Vintage as a, as a spike, uh, someone who really likes the interaction on, uh, of cards in a complex and, and uh, high-stakes environment. Um, there's two other psychographic profiles that haven't been created by the design team. Um, those are Melvin and Vorthos. And really quickly, Vorthos is the fluff bunny. Vorthos is the guy who maybe doesn't even play magic, but he just thinks these cards look so cool. Vorthos is the one who's sort of upset about the whole Benzer giving his soul uh, so that Karn could become a planeswalker thing, and who would make mention of it if you played a Venser Shaper Savant in the same deck as a Planeswalker Venser. And, John, you got a handle on Melvin? Yeah, Melvin are kind of like the people who are look at, like, the rules that govern the game or the rules that govern the creation of cards. Um, so, for, for example, um, I think the card that they t- talk about in the article here that Mara was referencing is Firemawk Habu which, if people don't know, is from the Time Spiral set. Um, it's a, a six-mana uh, card. It costs five and one red. Um, it has Echo, so you have to pay five and one red at the beginning of your upkeep or sacrifice him. And when he comes into play, he deals two damage to target creature. And when he leaves play, he deals four damage to target creature. And he's a four-two. And so, you know, most people take a look at the card and be like, oh... I'm going to play him and do two damage to a creature, and then, oh, if I don't pay the echo cost, well, he'll just deal four damage to something, or I just leave him around. But, like, uh, the the interesting thing that um, Melvin's could look at that is to dissect it and say, or oh, I could just deal two damage to him as he comes into play, and then deal four damage to something else immediately, and then kind of reiterate that and try to figure out how many different ways there are to play this card, <laughs> because there are a lot in this complex setting. So that's more of the Melvin, where they like to look at the, uh, the the building blocks of magic and kind of see how how they interact with each other. But I think that's pretty pretty well summed up. The best we can do, well, you know, only mildly plagiarizing Mark Rosewater, um, and uh, of course because you know podcasts give us this uh, chance to talk about ourselves in a way that just you know is an unbridled narcissistic fantasy. Uh, John and I thought we'd maybe talk a little bit about where we fit in on this spectrum and uh, ask you to tell us where you fit in and what aspects of the game you enjoy the most. So, Steve, which of these profiles do do you best associate with, or are you kind of a combination of a couple of these? Well, I'd probably say that I'm a combination of the Johnny, Spike, Timmy. I'd say I'm probably 80 Johnny, 10 Timmy, 10 Spike. I love winning. It's a good part of the game to me. But it's not that important. I really enjoy having as much fun as I can have. And if I played well, for me, I feel good. For me, it's it's how I win. That's the interesting part of the game to me. I love uh, combo decks like like uh, Goblin Shard Elcher um, in, in Legacy. And I love stuff like that's really aggressive in Standard. Um, you know, things, aggro decks that feel almost like combo decks. Because, I don't know, there's just always something there. There's always something you can change or you can morph or you can work on and tinker with. 
until the deck is running like a finely tuned machine and you're the one in control of it and you're piloting it. It's kind of neat. Uh, and the other thing I like about Charvelcher, though, is when it doesn't go off first turn or something disrupts it, how well does the deck recover? If the deck has no ability to recover once it's failed to do what it intended to do, then that's not fun for me either because then it's just all, it's like a coin flip. You know, the design aspect of figuring out what to do when your original plan fails and how you can come back with a very strong plan B is really interesting to me too. I'd also say that as far as Melvin and Vorthos go, I don't know, maybe half and half. I, uh, I'm i not so much of a rules lawyer that I can pilot a gush deck well, although I, I aspire to that. And uh, I, I'm not so much of a Vorthos that I've read the magic novels, but, you know, I mean, I, I do like to see Karn and Venser go off and do their thing. Yeah, I think the Vorthos folks also kind of like particular cards. Like, they might be more sticklers as, oh, I only want to play with the old border cards, or I want the new bordered foil version of that card, because that interests me, and I want to collect that, so... Well, you know, then, then okay, go ahead and call me a Vorthos, because I'm <laughs> that EDH. Yeah, okay, I think EDH kind of brings that out in everybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I'd say I'm mostly a spike player. Um, I do like to win. At my infancy in Magic, I was definitely more of a Timmy, where it was like, I liked, oh, Crawworm, where I liked Force of Nature, it's like, oh, these giant creatures, they, they must be awesome, because they're, this is an 8-8, or this is a 6-4. I mean, what can beat them? But I'd have to say that, you know, I, I also am, have some aspects of the uh, uh, Melvin profile uh, as well, because I, I do kind of, it kind of goes with my spikiness at times, where I feel like, well, what's the best play? How does this card interact with that card? You know, kind of looking at the uh, intricacies of everything. And I think every Spike player probably does that to an extent, but I think I kind of like looking at it from even a further extent. And uh, I'm not the greatest deck builder, I've found, but I like to tinker <laughs> a lot of times with, with decks, which I think is more of the Melvin side of me. So that's uh, I think that's about where I would fall on the spectrum. It's not to say I don't care about the fun story history of magic or collecting fun cards, because, you know, it's this one's shiny and this one's not. Um, or that I don't like combos, because there certainly are good decks in Magic that run combos. It's just that um, I, I like to try to build decks that play well against other decks that I know of. So, Well, Steve, I think this will bring us to the end of the show. Um, do you have a Commander card of the week this week, or are we just going to uh, blaze right into our Commander challenge? Uh, yes, to both. All right. Uh, what do you got for <laughs> us? All right. This week's random commander card is Sealed Fate. Uh, it is X, blue, and black. It is a sorcery. It is from Mirage, originally. And it reads, look at the top X cards of target opponent's library. Exile one of those cards and put the rest back on top of that player's library in any order. And the flavor text is, it's good to know more about your enemy's fate than your enemy does. Yeah, <laughs> so what makes this a good card? I don't know if it's good. I, I really won't go that far as to say it's good. But it is interesting, especially if you're up against someone who really loves his combos. Um, I find that stuff like this just infuriates people who were playing something like a Niv-Mizzet deck, uh, where you want to just find a card, or, or a deck that's trying to combo out. Um, because, it, you know, you put them back in any order, and so, what, they're going to draw islands for the next four turns unless they have something in their hand 
that is going to allow them to shuffle their library or whatever. It actually ends up being kind of a, depending if you play it early, it's not very good. Obviously, you want to play it in the mid to late game uh, and use it to try and stall out your opponent. Um, even if your opponent's playing aggro, you just toss lands his direction. Or if he's not getting lands, you just make sure he keeps not getting lands. Uh, put anything like a tutor on the bottom. What it is is it gives you time, and it's an interesting way of, I mean, obviously Fate Seal is a mechanic where you do something very similar to this, and this is kind of the historical precedent for Fate Seal. Um, anyway, it's it's just a neat little card, blue and black, and like blue and black really need more help. Uh, but it's it's less it's less of a go for the throat kind of card than some of the other stuff in blue and black, and can be really kind of fun in the right environment. It's uh, it's definitely a disruptive piece of tech. Fantastic. How about your commander challenge of the week, Steve? I don't think anyone has taken up the cause of your last challenge. No, no, I haven't gotten any responses back on the cantrip EDH deck, um, or at least not mono white cantrip EDH. So I'm just going to extend it a little bit further and say. What about a cantrip deck in EDH? Could you possibly use all of those janky cards that, uh, you know, ask you to pay way too much mana for the side effect of being able to draw a card off of them to generate such ludicrous card advantage in EDH that it doesn't matter that you're playing with a handful of crap? I would be very interested to see something like that. I don't know who you'd use for a general or what you'd do with it, but the concept is amusing enough that I'd really like to see it go somewhere. I mean, even white has something like 90 cards that you can use to cantrip. Granted, some of those are cycling cards, but I don't know. I want to see it. It's got to happen. It's got to be out there somewhere. I'm going to keep working on it, and maybe I'll post my ideas. This brings us to the end of our show. You can reach John on Twitter at Raxim. That's spelled R-A-K-S-H-I-M. You can also reach Steve on Twitter at Steve Lesky. That's all one word, and that's Lesky is spelled L-E-S-K-E. Um, also, you can leave uh, comments for us at mtgcast.com, or you can tweet us with the feedback, different deck ideas, or your favorite commander experiences. Also, if you do try out any of the decks we've talked about here on Lowered Standards, please let us know about your experiences with the deck and any suggestions you might have. I think that'll do it for this week, Steve. Any last words? I have but one regret that I have only one life to give for my country. Wait, that was that was not me. That was Patrick Henry. Well, then let, let's see Internet. Internet, the first sentence I read is, your tour guide will be Randy Bueller. Huh. Interesting. Well, yeah. until He's next time. Until next time, tour the universe with Randy Bueller. Good night, everyone. I guess I'm assuming they're listening to this at night. You know, it's probably something they're ashamed of. Or they wouldn't yeah. want to listen to it during the day when someone else might hear them. <laughs> 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 but until next time, keep listening to us at night. So you can reach me. Uh, that's John. I, I live. I live in a giant, you know, mushroom palace, and I, I'm, I'm surrounded by little mushroom men and turtles. I think I used that somewhere in this. I was going to say that, but it didn't quite didn't quite happen. I thought about that line earlier. I think okay. you used that line when you were telling your wife you didn't want to make dinner. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs>